0: please visit RedemptionOKC.com. Well, good morning. It's good to sing about a holy God. We looked at that passage last week, and um, we're in the middle of a series called Truth, Beauty, and Strength, talking about some of our vision as a church, and really what we believe God's called us to do in this season, and just in the life of our church family, and so we're excited that you're here. I want to let you know, and when we talk about vision, kind of one of the things we we can kind of do in this room is kind of point a finger and say, this is where we're going but it's hard to break it down and kind of say, well, here's how we're going to get there. And so I want to encourage you also, we've got a leadership equipping workshop coming up a week from Saturday. And so two weeks from now on the weekend. And those are really times where we try to equip anyone in our body that wants to grow. And just knowing how do you live this out? How do you work this out in your family? How do you work this out in your small group or your ministry or your church? How do you work this out in our community? And so today is kind of like, I'm going to get to drop a gps pen and say well here's where we're going well, if you want to come and figure out well like how do i get there then the leader equip workshop is a great way for you to come in and kind of just get a little more training in, in terms of the kind of nuts and bolts of how to unpack some of this so uh, let me tell you where we're going to go today and we're going to be in mark chapter two we're going to look at uh, a passage there and so if you got your bibles you might turn there um Last week, and and just so you know, as we talk about this vision series, kind of just short three-week series, uh, really four weeks, but we're talking about truth, beauty, and strength. Last week, we talked about truth. This week, we're gonna talk about beauty. And so these things really build upon one another. If you wanna understand the full, kind of the full thing i'd encourage you to go back and look at listen to the last week so that you kind of know where we were then chris referenced a little bit of that in isaiah 6 uh, but that really is foundational to understanding really where we go today as we begin to talk about beauty of christ's life and what grace looks like and um, some of those things so and when we talk about beauty it's kind of a strange thing anyone feel like beauty feels a lot more subjective than truth now, when we talk about truth, I said last week, and honestly, I was thinking driving over here today. It may have been a little bit of preacher speak. I know, you know, what I'm talking about preacher speak. We're going to overstate things a little bit. I think last week I said truth may be the most countercultural thing that we, that we talk about in the, in, the, in the current world because we speak about the truth. Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, we don't in a world where we talk about my truth and your truth and respecting everyone's truth. And yet yeah, Jesus comes and said, No, I am the truth. And there's an objective nature to that. And we talked about that last week. But I was thinking about this week grace may actually be just as countercultural in our day. When you think about grace in our world, we live in a world that is so hostile and so angry and so divided and so full of condemnation. It's kind of strange because kind of the, the progressive, politically correct people have become just as self-righteous and condemning as the religious, hyper-moral people. And so, like on either side, you just get this kind of self-righteous condemnation thing. And I think it gives us an incredible opportunity to talk about grace as something that's beautiful and different and distinct. I think it's a way that we can stand out in our world. So it, it, it's not that truth isn't a way we can stand out. It's just that it may not be the most radical. Grace may actually be just as radical as that in terms of standing out in the current world in which we live. I mean, think about beauty. Uh, I've got a picture I thought was really funny here of a museum. And uh, I don't know if you can see that, but you've got two little girls in a museum and they've got these incredible works of art around them. And what are they completely fixated on? The air conditioner vent. See, from their perspective, the air conditioner vent was way more fascinating than two paintings on a wall. And when we think about beauty, uh, it's an interesting thing for us to to begin to look at because uh, different people have different perspective on what they think is beautiful and what you understand to be beautiful. And so our our vision is to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. And one of the reasons that we want to talk about beauty is it's important. For us to understand the beauty of christ 's love the beauty of christ 's grace, because that 's one of the things that ought to challenge our minds and our presuppositions it ought to stir our hearts and our affections and our emotions as we understand who Christ is in fact there 's nothing more beautiful the world 's ever seen than Jesus there 's nothing better in fact, we, the passage we looked at in uh, throughout the Christmas season we looked at John chapter one, and in that We talked about Christ coming to the world and in his coming to the world, uh, we speak about that as the incarnation, meaning that God revealed himself. He put on flesh and made himself known to us in the most clear, compelling way possible, which is he sent His son to become one of us. And so John one says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. glory, is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So when Christ came into the world, there's something about the king and the creator and the majestic one that is to be worshiped who became an infant and became a servant of all and laid down his life for all and said, I I love you so much that I will will actually give my life away as a ransom to rescue you from captivity and give you freedom. And there's something in that that gives us a picture, it says, of glory, of grace and truth that's unique. And as long as I've been studying this book, and friends, I've been studying it for a long time, I've never gotten over the beauty of who Jesus is. and all the seminary classes I've taken and all the language courses to understand the intricacies of all this stuff and all the lessons I've taught and sermons I've given and all the th- books I've read and everything else, there, there's something about coming to this and just looking at the simplicity of who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and the things he did and the things he said that I've never recovered from. And I hope that's true of of each of us that we're blown away by the beauty of God because if we're gonna flourish as the people of God, we've gotta be a people of beauty. See, truth without beauty is cold and hard. Beauty makes us warm and attractive to a watching world so that we can also tell them about truth, which you can't really have one without the other. See, if we possess truth of the gospel and the word of God, but people won't trust us to tell them about the truth, it won't make any difference because they won't see who Christ really is. And here's the thing I, I think is true uh, that we see in the scriptures is that we're called to believe in Christ, but then we're called to follow Christ and become like Christ and begin to look like Christ. And I think our watching world is really tired of words think our watching world's tired of talk about God and church and morality and then the problem is that if we try to present the truth without relationship without connection without love of someone else then it comes across just as a grating hard tool that's pounding on someone else and it doesn't really impact their life as a general rule friends you aren't going to argue people into the kingdom of God especially from a distance Uh, We said last week, we live in a world that denies that there's any kind of objective truth. And so if you have people that they've already got that presupposition and you just try to tell them that they're wrong, there's nothing compelling in that as a conversation piece. And so we need to be people that are in proximity to others, in the presence of others, so that they can, through a relationship, we can build a bridge that crosses that gap in trust and can point them to the one who is truth, the one who is grace. And that gives us a chance, I think, to build all kinds of bridges in our world. Friends, the Bible describes faith as evidence of things not seen. Uh, I love that Hebrews 11 says that faith is the belief in things that you can't see. Uh, It's really hard to convince people to believe something they can't see, especially when you're just throwing arrows at them. It's gonna take something uh, bigger than what we can manage and what we can do, but it's usually not gonna be something that happens through screaming and yelling or protesting on social media. Um, ultimately what we need and what we see Jesus do is he creates these relationships where he has a personal encounter with someone that goes beyond words and lend credibility to things that he's saying. And so I want us to look at that today. Um, I think this is a, it's a big issue in the life of not just our church but really just the, the Christians throughout our whole world. That there's a, there's a credibility gap or a trust gap within the world, the way that others view Christians. And so we're going to have to do that. In fact, one guy says, most Christians don't perceive the church to be in the midst of the most severe struggle it's faced in centuries. That, that there's a separation and it gives us a struggle or a challenge, but it's also, I think, an incredible opportunity for us to step in and to, to point people to something that's beautiful, which is Christ. So let's look at Mark chapter two. Let's start off in verse 13, Mark two thirteen It says, and Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And he reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard it and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." So Jesus is gonna have this encounter and he's been going throughout the region. He's been teaching, he's been doing good works. He's been healing people, he's begun his ministry. And so there's all kinds of good stuff going on that Jesus is doing and people are attracted to that and they're interested in that. And they begin to check out Jesus and they're now listening to his teaching because they've seen the good that he's done. They've seen the ways cared for those who are hurting. They've seen the way he loved those who didn't have it all together. They've seen the way he initiated with compassion for people that were sick and, uh, and wounded and, and healing them and because of this now they're listening to his words and they're interested and they're following after him and so as he goes out they're coming out to to actually listen to his teaching and jesus then goes back in he goes back by a tax collector's booth uh most of you probably don't you're aware of what taxes are they come around with amazing regularity right I uh, got a letter from the IRS just the other day, and I noticed we had two of those, which always makes me nervous. I always open it up and go, well, what is that? And you begin to look and wonder what you owe, right? Because you know how these things work. Well, in that day, they had tax collector's booths, and it was a little bit different. Uh, you might think of it kind of like, a, uh, like a, when you're on a toll road and you pull through a toll booth, It was probably a similar thing like that. They were walking past an area, coming into a city, coming into a town. And as they did, there was a tax collector's booth and they could charge that. Now, the difference was, that these uh, kind of tax booths were like franchises that you could actually do um, by the Roman government. So you could take out and say, go to the Roman government and say, hey, I'd like to set up a tax booth and you'd become the franchise head of that tax deal. And almost always, these were something that you would pay a guy off so that you would get to establish one of these. Almost always, they would overcharge, they would take advantage of people. And so these were very much hated things, things that people did not like as they went to the highest bidder. And as those who had these franchises Franchises would typically um, typically go against uh, or, or, or violate some of the, the codes that were there in order to begrudgingly take away money from uh, even more money than what they would really do. And here's what's fascinating. Jesus goes to the owner of one of these franchises and says, "Follow me," and the guy gets up and does it, right? This would be like going through the drive thru at chick-fil-a and looking at the manager and say, "Hey, follow me." And the guy hands off to the shift manager and just walks out the door. That's basically what you had happening here, except that this was not a Chick-fil-A that people wanted. This was a tax collector that people hated. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to come and be one of my disciples to a guy who is very much an enemy in that culture, an enemy in that city, an enemy amongst those people. And people look at him and go, why do you want that guy to come with us? Now, it's not that different from what Jesus had done with other the other disciples. He'd gone to Andrew, he'd gone to Peter, he'd gone to, uh, to James and John, he had told them to follow him as well. The difference was that they were upright, respectable fishermen. They, they were kind of blue-collar workers, workers from the middle class. Uh, they were good citizens. They were likely church-going folks. They were people that the people in that society would have looked at and respected, but this one, Alphaeus, who's also named, his name is also Matthew. Actually, probably Jesus changes his name to Matthew. He's the one who wrote the Gospel of Matthew in your, in your Bible. He was a tax collector, which meant he was an hated enemy who was sort of in bed with the Roman Empire against his own people. And so there would have been a natural skepticism, a natural bitterness. This is the guy that's extorted money from us all these years. And Jesus, you're going to invite him just like you invited all of us to come in? to this thing and so there would have been some tension for them now as you think about this um, it's interesting to me that Matthew this one Alpheus had been one who had extorted and taken money from people and Matthew uh, Jesus changes his name to Matthew which means the gift of God and, and I love that that gives us a picture of what God does he takes those who were takers from men and he turns them into gifts to men Those who who extorted and and, and took away from others. He says, I'm going to change you into one who can be a gift of God to others and to the world. And I think that's a beautiful picture. Now, when you think about um, this, notice the first thing that happens in, in verse 15. So Jesus has called Matthew and he's invited him to come follow me. What's the verse in verse 15? First thing he happens, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclined alongside Jesus and his disciples. So the first thing Matthew does is he throws a party has a house party invites all his friends over to come meet with jesus so jesus and his disciples are hanging out uh, they're sharing a drink with these other guys they're sharing a meal and that day they were climbed. and so they whenever they had a, a big celebratory feast they would kind of chill and they just kind of kick back and and relax and it was going to be a long leisurely meal that they were going to share together and so they were enjoying this meal and as they did um It's meant to be this kind of surprising thing that happens. Now, Luke 15 tells the same story. or Luke 5 tells the story of the same meal. And Luke actually calls it a great feast, meaning it was a lavish feast. So this one who used to take money from everyone is already beginning to give lavishly and generously away. The gospel and Jesus grace does that to us. It makes us generous people. And so Matthew has now invited all these people in. And he's throwing them this great party. And Jesus is there eating and drinking with him and with all his friends. Now, who are these friends? Well, there's tax collectors. When you have a Christmas party, who do you usually invite to your Christmas party? You invite your, your co-workers, the people that we work with, right? And you invite your, your friends from your high school and your old buddies. And you invite your neighbors and everyone else that's there. And you kind of bring them all together and you throw a big party because those are the people you have contacts with in the world, Well, that's exactly what's happening here is he's inviting everyone that the other tax collectors that have franchises like he does, uh, so his coworkers. He's inviting the, the people from his neighborhood, the people that he hangs out with, and he's inviting them to come and to celebrate this great meal, but he's also inviting them to come and meet Jesus, right? Notice the title though, that is given to these people. Who were, who were his friends? Well, they were tax collectors and sinners. Uh, tax collectors was a very derogatory term, that, that depicted someone who had a social, uh, a social distance from you, a religious different distance from you, and, and a cultural distance from you. And yet, this is who Jesus is having a, a meal with. It's also notice that they're called sinners. Sinners was a title or description for those who were not in the religious crowd. They were not in the inner circle. They were those whose lives typify those who ran away from the people of God rather than those who ran with the people of God. And you know, it's the Pharisees that are worried about them. In fact, you know what's fascinating to me is Jesus later is called a glutton and a drunkard. And people kind of accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard. Why? I don't think it's because of what Jesus was doing. I think it was because who Jesus was associating with. But they were looking at Jesus and saying, well, if he's hanging out with them, he must be one of them. And so they began to disparage Jesus. Now the Pharisees avoided contact with people like this, and they were afraid that if they did, it would rub off on them. They were afraid it would make them unclean. They didn't want to be associated with sinners. And so the Pharisees and the religious types separated from them and said, look, there's us and we stay over here. And then there's them, them sinners over there that stay uh, away from us. I know that's not grammatically correct, but if you're in Oklahoma, the religious people would say them sinners, right? And so they're going to point them out over in a different direction. But just in case uh, the religious leaders afraid that Jesus made a mistake, they kind, of, they kind of wander up to Jesus' disciples and you kind of feel them on the outskirts of this thing and not maybe outside and go, hey, what's up with this? Is really what they're saying. Why is Jesus having a meal with these sinners and tax collectors? And they begin to ask a question about this whole thing. You see the sinner Pharisees in that world, just like ours, they were more than happy for sinners to repent and leave their old ways as long as they cleaned themselves up and looked like us. and As long as they they got themselves all cleaned up and looked like us before they came to meet with us, then they're not gonna rub off on us and we don't have to fear that they're going to contaminate us. And so we can be okay with them, who they are. It's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? That Jesus somehow left the comfortable religious circle and he's gone to spend time with people who don't, Typically, hang with the people of God. Um, how do you think non believers view Christians? See, I think it's fascinating that Matthew, that this tax collector, wanted his sinner friends to come spend time with Jesus. He invited them to be together, and he wanted them to. I think so often in our world, that's not the case. We, we, we tend to, to separate, we tend to try to keep those separate. And so we don't see this connection point. Um, I love a story that I read uh, from history. It was a story of our, Oliver Cromwell in England, who was a commander in chief during wartime. And they used silver for coins and they'd run out, of, uh, run out of silver to be able to print coins in order to purchase things and do the things they had to do. And so they had a little bit of a dilemma in the country. And so he sent his soldiers in, and he said, go to the cathedrals and see if they have any silver. And then the soldiers came back and reported to him, and they said, uh, they, they said that the only silver that the cathedrals had had all been used, had all been melted down and made into statues of saints. And to which Cromwell replied, well, melt down the saints and get them back in circulation. Um, I love the picture of that, that, that the saints' as statues weren't doing any good. And, and friends, the, the church was never meant to be a museum for the saints. The church is a, is, a, is a headquarters for a mission to go out into the world. And so it's not meant for us to exclude ourselves and purify ourselves and look like we've got it all together, but it's meant for us to be hanging out. Now, what if the Pharisees would have had a different approach here? Instead of them being skeptical and they said, why is he hanging out with sinners? What if they would have asked a different question? What if they would have said, could we come and join you? different would this text look if they had said, can we come and join you? Can we come and share a meal with you? Uh, can we come, uh, you know, we, would you offer me something to drink so I could sit with the rest of you and enjoy this, this, this time? I think it would have been completely different, but their, their fear and their self-protection kept them from enjoying the beauty of that moment. Their perspective, the way they saw it was different and had a radically different impact on them. And so as you think about this, Jesus' agenda and the Pharisees' agenda were not the same. They were bothered by who Jesus was, but they were also bothered by where Jesus was, the fact that he was interacting with them. And in that day, to share a meal with someone, especially in their home, was to be in a relationship or friendship with them. It was to say, I'm connected to you in a way of friendship. And so they were fearful of that kind of a thing. But don't you love that Jesus isn't fearful of that? In fact, did you know later that Jesus uh, kind of earned, he earns a title, the friend of sinners. Isn't that beautiful? He's a, he's a friend of sinners. And uh, this, this concept was so radical, the way Jesus lived, the way he interacted, that they actually began to identify Jesus with this type of behavior. He's a, he's the one who's a friend of those who are typically outcast in religious circles. Now, it's fascinating me that Jesus is there and he's enjoying it. It wasn't like Jesus didn't, didn't or disliked being there. Otherwise, they would never have called him a friend, right? Um, they, this is one that they, they began to perceive him. They don't call him a party pooper. They don't call him a, a, a buzz kill or a joy kill. They call him a friend of sinners. He's the one who would sit down and enjoy them. He wasn't defensive about his presence at the party. In fact, when the Pharisees accuse him and say, why are you sitting with those people? Jesus defends his reason and actually gives him a reason for that. Um, friends, I think uh, what, I, what I hope happens to you as we look at Jesus, if the, there's something that stirs in your heart and you think there's something I could give my life to. There's something I want to be about. I want to be connected with the people who need a savior. And so Jesus says to them, these are the ones I came for. You know, he's accused about being there. He says, look, I came for the sick, not the healthy. This is why I'm here. And so he came for the sinners. Friends, church is way more than a one-hour event you attend on, you attend on Sunday. All of life, what I hope you see is all of life is a chance for you to befriend those around us and to engage those, uh, those in our city with the love of Christ, to show off the beauty of his love and of his grace. And our, our vision as a church is not for you just to come here and for what happens in this room, although we really like when you come here. It's a good thing. We're glad that you come here. We want to gather. We're never going to give up the gathering of the saints. We're never going to give up the preaching of God's word. We're never going to waffle on what God's word says. We're going to, we're going to hold to the truth. We're going to hold fast to the truth. But we also have to scatter and go share the love of Christ and the beauty of his love with the, world, with the watching world. And so part of what that means is that we want you coaching Little League. We want you helping at schools. We want you doing a good job at your, at your, uh, at your place of work. We want you going to the gym. Uh, we want you shopping and we want you hanging out with people after work and in uh, places where you can go share a bowl of queso with others. We want you going all over the city doing all kinds of things that everyone else would do. We just want you to take Jesus with you into those spaces and share the love of Christ. We don't want to pull you out of the world. We want to send you into the world with Jesus at your side. And uh, we looked at the at, uh, last year, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, and uh, this verse really has shaped a lot of the way in which we're talking about this kind of in this year or this last year and in the year ahead. And so Matthew five, Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it up on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, you let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Because when Jesus talks about shining the light, he's speaking about the kind of influence he wants us to have in our world. He's talking about the presence he wants us to have in our world. And he says, I'm not pulling you out of the world so that you can hide the light and keep it for yourself, but I want you to go shine the light before others so that they can see it. And how do they see it? They see your good works. And they're attracted to that and they give glory to your Father in heaven. Notice it's, uh, it's interesting that we're, we're called to be distinct enough that we can shine, but not so isolated enough that we don't engage the darkness. That somehow we're supposed to shine in the midst of the darkness. And so we're, we're called out as people of truth and we're sent out as those who bear witness to the truth within the middle of our city. Notice that it's, um, it, in this passage, where does Jesus tell them that they're to shine? Or in Matthew 5, where does Jesus say we're supposed to shine our light? We're to shine our light before others, which means that you've got to be in proximity to other people so that they can, they can see the light of Christ in you. You've got to have a presence in the middle of, of other people so that they can, they, can get a, they can begin to feel the beauty and the goodness of Christ's love for them. You have to shine your light amidst, in the midst of them and so it says, shine your light before others. And others here are those who are outside the typical circle of the church, outside the circle of the disciples. And you're supposed to shine your light before them. Not only that, but Jesus feels strongly enough about it. Notice he says, hey, don't hide it. Don't hide the light. Which means there must be some kind of a temptation for us to want to withdraw and keep it to ourselves. Don't want to be fearful of being out in the middle of the darkness. And think, well, this light is just here to kind of keep me warm and safe. But that's not what Jesus says. says, don't hide it. Go shine your light boldly before others. Friends, we're, we're not supposed to pull away into some kind of a holy huddle as a church or as a, as a community of faith. We're to continue to be engaged and in, in, in to interact with our world. Notice the two little words in verse 16. He says that you're to let your light shine before others so that. When he says so that, that's telling us about the purpose. It's saying for the purpose that, or for this reason, or the reason that so that they may see. So you're supposed to shine in a way that, in a sense, shows off who Jesus is to others. You want them to see. You want to be close enough that they can see what it is that you're doing, and they see what is it they're supposed to see. They're supposed to see Jesus in you, who you are, your good works, the way in which you've begun to be shaped, have a life shaped by Christ. And because of that, they point, it points them to the, your Father in heaven. He's talking about our influence in the world around us, that we're called to be people of influence in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our church, and in our city. And this is what we're ultimately to be about. That they can observe our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. That our lives and our character and our love for others ought to reflect, however dimly, the glory and the goodness of Jesus. That's what we're ultimately called to be about. Um, Do you see how much value that puts on everything you do? the mission of god is not just for preachers but, you know sometimes we talk about me being called into the ministry to do this thing that i get to do on sundays and this is just an aspect of me using my gifts within the body of god or the body of christ but but ultimately all of us are called to represent jesus in our world that we're all set apart for that mission. We're all called to go be light into the world. And that happens not just an hour on Sunday, but that happens everywhere you go and everything you do. That means your work matters and your marriage matters and your parenting matters and your your, your sideline behavior at your kids' ball games matters. And you're enjoying a concert matters. And you're hanging out with friends in your neighborhood matters. And your 4th of July celebrations matter. Everything in your life matters because all of it is a chance for you to shine in the midst of the city. And so it should infuse meaning into every part of your life. It should mean that you wake up in the morning and go, man, today I have a chance to go live for Jesus in my world. That's church. Church is not just here when we come here. This is just a gathering for an hour before we scatter and go be light in the city. And so that's the mission we're called to be about as a church. And so friends, as you think about this, the fascinating thing, I think about what Jesus says is the ones who, is that these people then glorify God, but they see God's, they see Jesus' followers. And because of that, there's something attractive that they respect and admire, that they want to give glory. And they said, tell me where that that life comes from. And it stirs their heart to pursue one who's higher. And so that ought to point them ultimately to heaven. Friends, as I said earlier, our world, I think, is tired of words. It's tired of talk. I think our world is asking three questions of us. Do you love me? Are you real? Does it work? I I think these are the questions our world's asking when they look at Christians. And they, they hear that we say, this is where truth is found. But I think they wanna know, and do you love me like Christ? Are you real? Are you honest? And does it actually work, our world? In fact, Jesus told us that our world needs to see our love. John 13 says, by this, all people, meaning those outside, all people will know that you're my followers if you have love one for another. See, above everything else, our love communicates what God is like to a watching world. And friends, in a world that's so full of division and hostility and anger and loneliness and hopelessness, our world doesn't need more condemnation our world needs to see grace. Our world needs to know love. It needs, it needs to be to, to have a sense that we care about them before we try to tell them about truth. We're on the way to telling them about truth. That you have to ultimately have grace and truth together. Otherwise it's cold and it's condemning. Uh, one guy said it this way he said, We need to put much less time into pointing out the world's errors and much more time into proving God's love. But what what if most of our energy went not just to showing where everyone's wrong but into showing them what is right about Jesus and his love and his grace and his truth. But that we were convinced in so much that we wanted to show them in... Real practice. Only then will we have the kind of influence Jesus is talking about when he says shine into our world. Uh, One guy goes on, that, that statement goes on to say that only then will we have the kind of influence Jesus is talking about, the kind that makes for peace, not war, the kind that serves, not shouts, the kind that draws admiration, not a reaction, the kind that connects with unbelievers, inspiring them to point to the point of actually drawing praise from their lips. Isn't that what Jesus says? That they would look, they'd see, the goodness of God in you, and they glorify your Father in heaven because of it? That's the kind of influence I think Jesus is calling us to try to have in our world. Now let's go back to Mark 2. Back in Mark 2, you notice what happens in verse 16 and 17. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're asking a question, what's the purpose of all this? And Jesus gives them a proverb and he says uh, very simply um, that it's not those who have no need of a physician but those who are sick. And this is kind of a, a cultural proverb that just says, I go to where there's need. And so it's a, it's a proverb that was common in that day and they would have understood right away that he's saying, look, I'm just going to where I'm needed and I'm going to be with these people. Now, there's an interesting thing. You notice he says, I came to call the, not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this word picture, Jesus is a savior. He's going to to be a physician of their souls and he's gonna help those who are in need. Is he saying that these sinners and tax collectors need him, but the Pharisees don't? No, he's not. He's trying to get the Pharisees to recognize you're no better off. See, in your self-righteousness and your condemnation, you've got just as much of a problem as they do. Yours, yours just looks different. While they run after God in, in worldly sort of ways, you run after God in in religious sort of ways. And so you and, and yourself are just as much a sinner in need of a savior as they are. If you think your health is fine, Jesus is saying you're never gonna seek a doctor. You know, uh, I, confession, you know, I think we probably most of us have been in this world by now, but uh, I th- pretty sure I got COVID before COVID was supposedly in Oklahoma, like February of 2020. And when I did, uh, Chris and I were away on a work retreat and I looked at him and I was like, dude, I got to go home. Like, I don't feel good right now. And we got in the car and we packed it up and I called Nan and I was talking with her and I was like, I'm going straight to the doctor. And Nan uh, laughed and she said, you know how many times in 25 years of marriage you've initiated going to the doctor? It's like, this is the first time you've ever done this. And literally, I called the doctor and went, dropped Chris off and went straight to, the, straight to the doctor because it felt like something was on my chest and I couldn't breathe. And I was needy. And I was like, dude, I don't, like, this has got to get fixed. And so I was asking for help. And I went to a doctor. And what Jesus is saying, that unless you realize you're needy, you're never going to experience the Savior and His grace. So He's trying to tell the self-righteous you're just as needy as they are you just don't feel it yet and so there's an invitation to come last week we looked at isaiah isaiah 6 and the amazing thing about that passage is that Isaiah steps into this vision. In this vision, uh, God appears, and, and Chris read that earlier, but it says that the, the, the angels are there above the altar, and the God's sitting on a throne, and his train fills a robe, and smoke begins to fill, it. and the angels are screaming out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this angel answers back and says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And it's going back and forth, and what does Isaiah immediately say in the presence of God? Woe is me. I am undone I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips he understands that in the comparison and condemnation game we all stand condemned before a holy God so friends if you want to understand grace don't compare and condemn others around you step into the presence of a holy God and it will silence you and you'll say as as Isaiah did I'm undone I'm a man of unclean lips but then what happens in Isaiah's life An angel comes and he takes a coal and he puts it to his lips and says your sins are atoned for you're forgiven and he experiences the healing of God's touch that comes towards him and immediately then what's God say whom will I send out into the world and what's Isaiah say here am I, send me, right? When he understood his need for a Savior under a holy God, he said, Let me go tell others about the goodness of the forgiveness of your sins and the grace that is yours. And when we understand that kind of grace, we immediately want to respond in mission and going to others. Nothing will send us to sinners like grace. Like understanding what we really have received because of God. First Timothy, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says something similar. First Timothy uh, Paul says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came to save into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. And see, when you when you when you're no longer the self-righteous that just condemns and compares yourself to other sinners and goes, Well, I don't like their sins as much as I like my sins, so I'm going to condemn them. But when you step in under a Holy God and you go, I'm undone, I'm a man of of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips, meaning we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners, as Paul says, Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. When we see ourselves in that boat of sinners that need a savior, then there's freedom to go and share a meal with sinners. Then there's freedom to go and associate with them and to live as Jesus did. See, Jesus isn't a guru, a counselor, an advisor, a therapist, a helpful model, a nice teacher. Jesus is the savior of the world who came and was willing to give up his life in order to save us. And he saved us. We're saved not on the basis of our goodness and righteousness. We're saved through his sacrifice and through his death and the atonement that he offers to us. So friends, as you think about church, I just want to encourage you, religious people aren't, aren't, uh, aren't fascinated by grace. But Christians are fascinated by grace. We're overwhelmed with the beauty of God's, of God's goodness. And church is ultimately a, an imperfect community of forgiven sinners trying to help other people meet a savior. That's, that's what we're to be about. Imperfect people who are forgiven sinners trying to help other find, others find forgiveness in the grace of Christ. And if you know grace, and, then you have good news to offer the world. And it completely alters the way in which we interact with the world. So friends, I don't have time to unpack all of this. Um, let me just say Mark ten forty-five, verse that shaped our community here. It says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Christ didn't come saying, I expect you to have it all together. He came saying, I, I came to the sick. I came to sinners in need of grace. I came to people who needed forgiveness. And I came as a servant, not demanding service, but as one willing to lay down my life, to pay the ransom, to rescue people for myself. That's the mission that, that we've been given. He says, as the father sent me, I'm sending you. And so friends, as we scatter in this place, as we go out into the world, we go as those who are sent by Jesus with the message, the good news of his truth and of his grace to live in the midst of people who need his grace so that they might meet a savior named Jesus and become one of us. And that's the picture that we're to have when we think about church. Is that good news for you? Um, Do you know you need grace? Have you received grace? Like, do you really know it? Do you know grace in your heart? Because when you do, you're gonna wanna share it with others. Grace always begets more grace. And when we taste it, we want to give it. And so that's ultimately what we're called to do. And um, we'll unpack more how to do that in the, in the days and weeks to come. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that this would be a people of grace. Father, that you would make us a house of grace. And as we prepare to move to a new location in downtown Edmond, there would be all kinds of opportunity for us to be a people of grace in the center of our city. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts that in the heart of Edmund, that we would that be a beacon of light telling people of your love, that they might know grace and truth in the person of Jesus, not because we have it all together, but because we have a Savior who does. Father, not because we've arrived, but because Jesus arrived, lived a perfect life, died upon a cross, left an empty tomb and promises to come back one day and make all things new. Father, because of him, let us shine brightly into our city. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.